Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, and I'm here, as always, with David Scott. How are you, Dave? I'm very good, thanks, Paul. How are you? I'm great. Um, so we're here to introduce you to the recording of our live show, which was a good, fun evening on Tuesday, uh, the 27th of November, Dave, wasn't it? It was good. It was. It was a fun night, a laughing night, and it was a long night as well. It was. Um, so... We have um, about 90 minutes uh, of, of recorded material for you. Um, I think you'll uh, enjoy some of these highlights. Um, the first two panels, uh, we're breaking this into two shows. Um, so this is part one. Uh, and the first two panels, one is on allocators. Um, so basically managing portfolios in this uh, increasingly volatile world where we're seeing asset prices move around um, much more uh, quickly, violently sometimes than, than they have. It's been a bit all over the shop, Dave, hasn't it? It has. So it's been a very uh, trying time for investors, particularly those who trade and are uh, very short-term in nature. But uh, I think that people who are listening to the podcast will definitely like to go and hit, listen to what uh, Con Michalakis from Statewide Super had to go and say about long-term investing because it puts a bit of perspective sometimes on to not to panic about uh, no volatility when you see you know, a 2% correction on the uh, S&P 500 or whatnot. So the first panel, um, we'll kick it off here. Uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll kick you into the recording, but it features Laura Fitzsimmons, who's Executive Director of Macro Sales at JP Morgan, Eleanor Cray, who's a Market Strategist at uh, Saxo Capital Markets, Con Michalakis, as Dave mentioned, uh, who's the CIO at Statewide Super, runs $8.5 billion um, for the fund there, and James Whelan, uh, Investment Manager at VFS Group, uh, which and he runs the, the Global Macro Fund uh, for those guys um, there. So I'll hand it over to the panel. Okay, hello everybody. Thank you for joining us. Um, our first panel, um, we're going to talk about, um, there's been a lot has changed this year uh, in, in global markets. I mentioned just a minute ago, iron ore this week, uh, huge, huge moves. Uh, it has certainly been, um, uh, you know, every morning that get up now, um, there is stuff to look at. Um, there are prices to talk about. Laura, what is happening? Well, if you'd asked me that two months ago, I think, you know, most people were kind of thinking, oh, eventually the music's got to stop, right? But it's probably a late 2019, maybe mid-2020 story when we're thinking about perhaps a US recession coming. Right now, though, the late cycle dynamics, people are starting to think, well, you know, this isn't even just symptomatic of what could come. This could already be the beginning of the end for this cycle. So I think that's where the sentiment's really changed in the last couple of months. Obviously, we've had huge moves, but I think to really understand what's happened, what's changed, is to go back and look. You know, 2017 was a, an extraordinary year in the sense that you had, across most asset classes, um, you know, performance two to three times what their normal averages would be, except maybe for equities. Um, sorry, except maybe for commodities. But, uh, you know, essentially, it was also done with such low volatility. And this year, you started to have payback. And we saw that start in February, and, you know, clearly the vol correction there. Uh, but also, you know, second quarter, EM flare-ups, you started to see some of the cracks beginning to appear. And I think people, investors particularly, started to look at where is their leverage within the system, because you've also got this backdrop of the liquidity withdrawal as well. And so I think the problem is, once they started to look at leverage, they realised that it's actually everywhere. And unfortunately, they've now recognised it's in two of the places they last want to admit, and that's US equities and US corporate debt. And I think that's really what we've seen in September, I'm sorry, in October and of course the beginning of November, uh, and that's where things have started to change. But if you look at the data, I mean the US economic data, it's actually still held in pretty okay. 
And, you know, if we look at our recession risk models that we have at JP Morgan, you know, essentially it's only suggesting from our near-term economic indicators that there's maybe a 17% chance of a US recession in the next year. But if you look at financial markets, if you, you know, if you look at things like credit spreads, the drawdown on the S&P, and, you know, the yield curve shape, it's actually suggesting that probability is around 55%. So I saw there's been a big move in high yield um, yeah. uh, spreads uh, in the last month. Um, so certainly getting interesting uh, for companies that are debt laden. Yeah. Uh, and we might talk about leverage loans at some point. Kong, um, what have you changed? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> okay, so I think, um, I think we have NFI, what's going on, right? So, and being a long-term pension fund, I don't know, but all I know is that we've had a really good run, we've got record low interest rates, we've got a lot of debt, so we're going to go into a world that's going to be rockier, right? Is it a late cycle, mid cycle, whatever cycle? We don't know. And, and I think you've got to, as a pension fund, you want to be diversified, you want to, you know, crashonomics is really trendy, you know, like everybody wants to pick a crash. But if you mark to market there, anyone who's picked a crash, you'd find their P&L, they'd be carted out in the street. So I, I just, I think it's really hard. I think we're living in a difficult world, but you want to be pretty well diversified. What we do know is, um, as, as <coughs> Laura said, you know, liquidity is coming out of the system. You know, maybe markets are finally waking up after a period of a really good run. And maybe this is reality for the next five to seven years. Plus, you've got a toxic geopolitical environment. I mean, Australia, I mean, Italy has more PMs have had more. I think Australia's had more PMs in Italy, right? Only just I mean, correct. I'm Greek descent, and Greece is more stable than Australia. <laughs> I mean, how the fuck did that happen, right? So, you know, um, you know so I, I, I just think, I think we're in this really screwed up environment. But the idea of over-trading, you're going to lose a lot of money, and can you've got to be really careful. Can I ask you about the politics? How do you factor in for this, for, for the, the unpredictability of... Uh, I mean, we were just talking earlier on, there was a headline across from Bloomberg, which was... Um, there was some statement from... Uh, and Al called it out. Um, there was a statement from the, um, the Chinese Foreign Ministry talking about how Trump and Xi um, had been talking about the need um, to, um, to reach some kind of rapprochement or some kind of detente, I think. But how do you, how do you deal with this? Wouldn't, because you love to be, wouldn't you love to be in a room with those two hanging out? <laughs> I mean, could you imagine? Have the I mean, option this week. But could you imagine the egos on that? <laughs> yeah. Fun. Uh, you can't. You can't pick geopolitics. Um, other than that, it's getting darker and nastier. It is in this country. It is in the UK with Brexit. It is with Trump. I was in China um, about eight weeks ago. You can't pick up ABC websites banned. You can't go to BBC. You can't use Google. You can't. I use Twitter on on, a, on someone's VPN, and someone called me and said, "Be careful! Don't tweet." Right? And they, you need to think about it. So, it's it's becoming an Orwellian state. I, I it sort of offends my sort of Western liberal values that have how, what's going on there. Um, El, I want to ask you something. Picking up on something that that Con alluded to. Um, Con uh, mentioned for maybe five to seven years that this is going to be, you know, this, this is a, maybe a medium to long-term uh, reality. Um, how do you think about that? Yeah, so we certainly see this uh, reality that we've entered in 2018 as something <coughs> that is going to linger. So this pickup in volatility that we've seen, we see that sticking around. So I think it's, it's questionable now heading 
into the close of 2018 and you look at uh, various asset classes and what they've returned over the past year and with only US T-bills delivering a positive return, it's now questionable whether we're actually still in a bull market anymore. So we've really come to that turn in the cycle from our opinion and we've got that uh, cycle turn being driven, I guess, by falling globalization. Uh, so we've seen a sort of deterioration of the rules-based global order. We've also got the rising cost of money. So it's not so much the absolute level of rates, but it's the speed at which they've risen. And you can see that reflected in um, the US 30-year mortgage rate and how quickly that's picked up at credit card rates as well. And as well, it's that shrinking global liquidity. So we've had dollar liquidity slashed in half. And that's going to continue as well as the Fed continue to roll off their balance sheet. So all this is making up for a pretty ugly 2019. So um, what about from um, a, an allocation perspective then? Um, like, is there, is there anywhere to hide? <laughs> so I think at the moment, looking at sort of the dynamics that are going on in the yield curve and as well looking at the fact that we think that US growth has peaked, uh, US inflation as well has peaked. So I think it's pretty clear now that the inflation we saw throughout the past year is cyclical and those structural deflationary forces are still residing, uh, especially when we factor in, I guess, the recent sell-off that we've had in oil into the um, headline CPI figures moving forward, that we've seen this peak in US growth and inflation. So in that sense, uh, maybe there's somewhere to hide in the long bond trade. So possibly buying calls on the TLT, the calls on the TLT, you may need to... Uh... The US 10-year ETF. <laughs> right, okay. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Uh, James, um, how are you seeing this? Well, I've just managed to summarise everything that's been said into a few points here. Um, the first and foremost is, is uh, for me, one of the golden rules, that credit ends bull markets. And, and that's one of those things that we've talked about with, with spreads, with debt, the um, that's there. And we can talk about zombies, and, I, and I've been talking about zombies for a while now. Uh, that's there. The other, the other thing which is something to think about, and I'll leave it for, for later, um, but for the third thing that I wrote is that the, these are the QE chickens that have come home to roost. Um, the fourth uh, is re with regards to Trump and Z, and I've also put next to that WTF uh, on, on that one, just to go from there, and that also sort of reflects exactly what the geopolitical situation is right now. Um, the other one is increased volatility, which I think that you mentioned and you mentioned as well, uh, with regards to that, and I've written now normal and I've written new normal. And, and that's just the way that things would go. The other thing that I've put in here at number two, and that's something that we should all sort of take some sort of relief from, which is that once something becomes talked about, it stops being a thing. In the same way that everyone has talked about, oh, as soon as the yield curve flattens, it's a recession, like it's going to happen the next day. Oh, as soon as this is, this is agreed upon, or as soon as Brexit, as soon as Brexit happens, it's, 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 it's done and the world is over. It's not. Once it becomes talked about, it becomes factored in and baked in. Once the Fed raises a few, uh, a few times, we're all, we're all, we're all going to die. Watch out. But it's not that bad. I do think that we are heading into a very ordinary situation in 2019. We are preparing ourselves for that. It's a lot of things, though, once they become talked about, become baked in and become part of the story and also become factored in and also become every single problem that has become a problem has been solved through, well, mostly the Fed, but, yeah. uh, you know, some other guys have been involved as well. James, I was going to ask you a quick question. So 2019 is going to be a gnarly situation in your, uh, your mind. <laughs> yep. How can a, a person on the street who's looking to go and uh, no, get a decent return on their money in such an environment, what assets should they be looking to go and uh, park their money in? How long is the time period? Yeah, so Con and I, Con and I have different conversations about time periods on, on, on things. So Con's mm. time period is, is probably for longer than he'll be 
the chief investment officer of his particular fund, which is great. <laughs> mine, mine has a tendency, it, it, no, through just... 10 years. Just 10, <laughs> ten, ten years. 10 years. That's, no, ten not, not because he's not a great fund manager, just because he's, you know, it's, it, you know he's, uh, anyway, go on. So, <laughs> moving on. Hey, how's it going? Um, uh, so, uh, that, uh, the, and, and, and mine differed based on the client and the client cycle that, that, that they're in. Um, what I am certain to, uh, starting to move people towards, and I think a lot of people are, is looking at value as opposed to growth. That's the most obvious conversation that's going on in this situation. But also what I'm starting to do is going, reassess what your expectations are for your portfolio return and stop going fang return and start thinking, what's a boring number, Con? For equities? Yeah. Seven, ten years? Hit seven in, yeah. Six to eight? Yeah, six to eight's nice. Yeah, if you can get there. Right, but the path might be, whoa. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Expect, expect it in 2019. Like yeah. But, but, but don't expect that you're going to get FANG returns next year. Reset that. So we're buying a lot of value and also protecting it with, uh, through the options market because if everything does go to hell in a handbasket, you want to have a little bit of protection on the downside. One of the big questions here, Laura, is um, uh, the extraordinary run that the global economy has had. Um, uh, probably this time last year, um, you look at the PMI dashboard, everything's green um, and a strong green, like, you know, 52 kind of pretty common as a PMI reading. Um, so um, is that starting to get long in the tooth? Um, and what do you think about how that comes to an end? Well, I think, I mean, it was very different the beginning of this year even versus last year because, you know, you had everything flashing green, whereas suddenly it all became about the US this year and, you know, we have this whole concept about US exceptionalism that started to occur and essentially, you know, Europe disappointed, Japan started to disappoint um, and then, of course, now China is clearly disappointing, uh, let alone the rest of EM. So I think that's been where, you know, the wheels started to come off from the global growth story. Next year, we think potentially you might start to see a little bit of rebalancing back again and you might start to see Europe pick up again from some of the export doldrums that we've seen this year. Um, but at the same time, I think people feel that it's, it's tenuous at best because China, you know, if, even if they stabilise, you know, what does that mean for the rest of the global economy? And I think stabilisation, even in China, would be a great outcome at this stage. So yeah. I think that's where it gets quite difficult to look forward um, in the sense of, of trying to look for that global growth lift. And I think, you know, the US may continue, I feel, in some ways to, to remain quite exceptional through the start of next year. El, you look very carefully at some of the Chinese policy measures, right? So if there is going to be a PBOC put, if you like, uh, uh, what might that look like? Well, certainly we're not too helpful on a PBOC put essentially, I guess, uh, supporting global economic growth. But in terms of a turnaround in China, I think that possibly in the first half of 2019, we could start to see a turnaround in China. We will start to see those stimulus measures that have been taken this year. And we are as well expecting the stimulus measures to continue to pick up. So I think this year, if you're sitting in China, we've actually been in a little bit of a limbo. So we've had this deleveraging policy that has carried us through to the beginning of this year. And then we've had trade wars, and we've also had the uh, 40th anniversary of the uh, Chinese reforms and Deng Xiaoping opening up. So if you look at all the newspapers,
newspapers over particularly the last weekend. And this is really, I think, what business people in China were looking for, was this confirmation of China opening up and continuing on the path to reforms. And we've had that now. Uh, we've also had a lot of the rhetoric and the momentum around that sort of increased stimulus measures picking up. We're certainly expecting uh, further tax cuts, further triple R cuts. I mean, I think it's a little bit of a situation of kicking the can down the road in terms of uh, expanding, I guess, the Chinese credit cycle. But we certainly think that we can start to see a, a change in the relative growth leadership in the first half of next year, maybe, towards China. Con, do you, um, are you enthusiastic about China, about investment options connected um, to it? Interesting, I was, we saw one of the large venture capital funds in Shanghai. <clears throat> and there's the triangle, Hong Kong, Guangzhou, Shenzhen, then uh, Shanghai to Hangzhou, and then Beijing. And they're saying it's tremendous. Some of the stuff they're doing there is tremendous, really interesting. They've been there for over 30 years. It's Warburg Pincus, so you know, they, they're, they're, you know, they've been around for a long time. So there's really interesting opportunities, and I think, I think that's great. We, we haven't deployed a lot of capital in China. Um, I've been a bit bearish about just the credit cycle and the fact that once you're in, it's really hard to check out and you can't be critical. But don't underestimate that it is a, it is a, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening. I mean, the, the geopolitics and obviously the whole Emperor Xi thing is scary, but there's no doubt there's a lot of interesting stuff coming through. Um, James, uh, I'll leave the, the last word to you. Um, uh, just surviving this volatility, um, mm -hmm. just getting through it, um, how do you think about that? Because the way we see these moves, um, if you're exposed, you yeah. can take a bath. Well, uh, that's right. So if you look closely, that's October, that grey streak through there, and that's November, <laughs> that grey streak through there. It's been, it's, it's been difficult, and it's difficult taking, taking a... Even if you are bearish, and I was bearish um, leading up into the midterms, it is really difficult to take a big position on that bearish position because it means that you have to over-allocate onto the downside, which means that you've got to take... It's like me all of a sudden saying, OK, we're going to be 70% BHP. That's a, or, you know, for example, okay. Um, the idea is survival uh, for now and, and waiting and not being impatient. So have you moved to a lot of cash or? We do have a lot of cash in there. And, and in fact, that uh, we have a, a model that sort of gives us some guidance on things that, we, uh, things that we do in the ETF space. It's now cash, US dollars. Um, it's got a short of the US market and it just yesterday triggered a long gold position. Right. Mm. That's a scary, that is, those are scary positions to have going forward. Mm. Um, Con, very quickly, how much cash? Uh, about, so in, we've got a growth fund, it's roughly about 8% cash, but we don't, and then the whole industry is moving to dynamic asset allocation. I'm an old one person on this panel, so I, I can say this with, with a bit of experience. The, the advantage everyone here has got in this room is not to think this, just try and think longer term. If you got your pension, you got your super, you got an investment horizon, please just try and think out a bit. Think it out. Find interesting long-term quality investments. Don't try and time this. I think the over-trading that I'm seeing in this market, I think there are a lot of people are gonna get just lots of little splinters and they're gonna cut themselves. Just, just think longer term. If you can think beyond five minutes, you're probably going to be okay. Right? With that terrific exhortation, and on a very positive note, we're going to wrap up this panel, and you'll see all these guys in a little bit. All right, thanks very much. Thank 
that was our allocators panel. Um, for our next session, uh, we had a look at, surprise, surprise, the property market. Um, I think it was probably one part of the evening that a lot of people came along specifically to listen to, Dave, hey? I think most of the audience was there, and there were certainly the most laughs and jeers and everything else during this uh, this particular era part of the podcast. So uh, it was very uh, entertaining to go and uh, partake in. Um, so we kick off this uh, session with Joe Masters, uh, Joanne Masters from ANZ, who's a senior economist there, uh, who recently downgraded her forecasts for the Sydney and Melbourne property market. Um, we've also got on the show Pete Wargent, uh, who is a well-known uh, property commentator. He runs buyer's agency, Alan Wargent, uh, with offices in Sydney, Brisbane and London. Um, and there's also Cameron Kusher, who is uh, head of research for CoreLogic and, and publishes the uh, regular data that we cover on Business Insider. Uh, on auction clearance rates uh, and house prices. Uh, and of course, then we're also joined by uh, Stephen Kukoulis, the Managing Director at Market Economics uh, and one of the more provocative uh, economic commentators out there. Over to the panel. Okay, we've got Scotty on his feet. Uh, yeah, this is a, yeah, yeah, a bit more like it. Um, I think there might be a few people here um, interested in hearing um, about the property market. So that is what we're here to do. Uh, Joe. Uh, Important, very detailed, very extensive note last week uh, in which you downgraded your outlook for the Sydney and Melbourne property markets uh, and uh, you pushed out your timing of um, RBA rate hikes. Can you talk us through that? Sure. So we did downgrade our forecasts. Uh, we've now got peak to trough falls in Sydney and Melbourne of 15 to 20%. Look, we sort of had to to be honest. Uh, price falls to date were about 8% in Sydney and we had previously a 12% peak to uh, trough fall. So why has that happened, I guess? Um, you know, I think this cycle is very different. It's very unique. It's being driven by a tightening in the availability of credit rather than the price of credit. So that creates two problems for research teams. The first one is we can't measure the availability of credit. We don't have a data point that tells us how tight credit has become. And each bank has put through this tightening slightly differently in slightly different ways at slightly different times. So we know it's tighter, but we don't really know how much tighter. The second one is that econometric models capture the price of credit, not the availability of credit. So it's forced us to look at the market, I, I guess, in a little bit slightly differently. We've had to use different sort of metrics. But what we do know is when we look at data points around where the market is now, each and every one of them is showing ongoing weakness and actually accelerating weakness, no real sign of stabilization. And we had thought by now that we would start to see the falls in house prices starting to moderate, and we're just not seeing that. And of course, there's the potential for further credit tightening. Uh, we get the final report from the Royal Commission in February. Uh, we get comprehensive credit reporting. And actually, banks are still tightening up on the way that they assess uh, income and the like. So more credit tightening to come, no sign of stabilization. So we really had to push out um, and, and sort of expect further weakness or further months of weakness. So the first Tuesday of the month has become a very tedious <laughs> event. Um, yeah. Uh, and I think there was a really interesting uh, uh, session. We were at uh, a few journalists um, we were announcing the Walkley Awards, uh, the nominations for the finalists in the uh, Walkley Awards for Business. Uh, and I think um, uh, uh, um, it was Guy DeBell spoke at it and just talked to us about a bit of the expectations that he'd like to see a bit more um, of uh, editors and journalists using probabilities uh, in when they attach when attached to a forecast, et cetera, et cetera. But he got grilled on, why don't you have a press conference like the Fed mm -hmm. so that we can all go there and ask you proper questions, Mr. Um, Deputy Governor. But um, look, he, um, he, 
you have now pushed out this um, this call. Yep. So we're now looking at a long End of 2020. Period. It's yeah. a long way away and a lot can change between now and then. Yeah, so what's the, the, the rationale and how do you think sure. they're going to have to um, manage that? Because there's a big communication uh, issue around that too, yeah. isn't there? Absolutely. Yeah. So look, you know, one of the things that we've been highlighting is that whilst the housing market's very weak, the rest of the economy looks quite good. And if you look at the RBA's numbers, they've got 3.5% growth and an unemployment rate falling below 5%, and we think when they extend their forecast out to the end of 2021, they'll have the magic 2.5% inflation forecast out there. But we don't think they'll hike rates when house prices are still falling. Now, the RBA don't care about house prices per se, they care about the transmission, but you know the market falls are quite heavy in the housing market, and there's a fair bit of uncertainty around that, so we think they'll wait for stabilisation in the housing market before they look to nudge rates higher. Okay, uh, Cameron. Um a protracted period uh, of weakness. Now, um, you're, you look at fine details of sales every single week uh, across every city. Um, maybe you can um, give us a summary of how you're seeing things at the moment, particularly over the last couple of weeks, because it seems to be accelerating. Yeah, so I had a look today at the fall so far this month, and uh, so far this month values are down 0.7%. We're getting to the end of the month at the end of this week. If that holds for the rest of this month, it'll be the weakest uh, monthly index uh, for, or the largest fall in the index for a month since December 2000, 2008. So if anything, it looks like you know the housing we market's then, actually, yeah. <laughs> actually getting weaker. We're looking at a, more than a 1% fall in Sydney uh, for November. And if we look at the other data, you know, transaction volumes are, are falling uh, pretty much across the board. Uh, and going out there and talking to people, basically, I was in Perth a couple of weeks ago and, you know, they were saying things were starting to look better about 12 months ago, but as soon as credit tightened up again uh, earlier this year, any sign of a recovery in the market just faded away. And, you know, as Joe said, with the Royal Commission, credit tightening, uh, the prospects for a turnaround in the housing market in the short term don't, don't seem to be there. So we're certainly expecting the weakness through this year and well into next year. Perhaps the one saving grace we're starting to see is that fewer people are actually bringing properties to the market at the moment. So there's still a lot of stock actually available for sale, but I think vendors are getting the message that if you don't need to sell, it's not a good time to bring properties to the market. And the other thing we see around Christmas time is a lot of stock pulled off the market. So what those vendors do next year, whether they bring those properties back and start advertising them again, or if they hold them off the market, could really dictate uh, how the market performs through 2019. So yeah. what would you look at there to, sorry, Dave? No, Cameron, I was just going to ask a quick question. There's so much focus on what's going on in Sydney and Melbourne at the moment. Understandably, we've got 40% of the population in those two cities. Uh, outside of those areas, major cities, Adelaide, Brisbane, Perth, you've discussed as falling. Is there a chance that what we're seeing in Sydney right now could actually start to go and impact those markets to a certain degree? Because you talked about how there's, there's properties being taken off the market at the moment uh, in Sydney and Melbourne. But I also noticed in the data that you released this week that there's actually a lot of new property listings that are occurring year on year in those smaller markets. Yep. Is there a potential that the same sort of scenario could happen? Definitely. I mean, generally speaking, if we look at the rate of growth in, in dwelling values in all capital cities, the only market that's got a better rate of growth over the last 12 months than it did uh, a year ago is actually Darwin. Now, values are still falling in Darwin, but it's probably not being discussed so much that Sydney and Melbourne are, are certainly the highlights, but the rate of growth elsewhere is also slowing uh, quite a bit. It's still positive in, in most markets, but it's slowed right down. And, and obviously, uh, tighter credit conditions and everything we're seeing out there in the economy 
doesn't just affect Sydney and Melbourne. And you know, you talk to people in Brisbane, talk to people in Perth, everyone says the last thing we need are those tighter credit conditions. We've had 10 years of virtually no growth, uh, but it does have repercussions. What we're really doing for Sydney and Melbourne on the other parts of the country. And actually, just to add to that, on your data, you're also seeing house prices fall in the rest of New South Wales and the rest of Victoria now. So that weakness is already spreading across segments and across actually regional areas. Stephen, how bad is this going to get? Uh, look, it's, there's no doubt that the fundamentals are pretty poor for the housing market and house prices. And the uh, while I'm not uh, one of these catastrophe type people on house prices, in fact, on the contrary, I still think that there's probably a good six to 12 months of weakness to come. That the tightening in credit is a cyclical thing, not a structural problem with house prices. We do know that while there's still a glut of supply, and Cameron touched on that quite nicely, but we do know that building approvals are tapering off. They are falling. Uh, building approvals aren't necessarily being transmitted into completions. So there's a bit more of a dropout than is normally the case. So in a sense, if I look at the sort of more medium-term fundamental issues, that that supply side isn't quite as extreme. And for the moment, uh, the demand side from population growth is still quite strong, despite what Mr. Morrison may say uh, one yeah. way or another. So there's still yeah, a I very think strong. It's interesting that the, the new cap is, is, is what the actual. Really yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, so, yeah. so there's still an underlying demand there. And things that uh, the other sort of drivers of household and house prices, such as household formation rates, uh, yeah, divorce levels, age at which people get married, these sorts of things, they haven't, they're still sort of suggesting that there's some pent up demand there. First home buyers. Gosh, it's a great time to buy a house if you can if you can if you can scrape if you can scrape if you can scrape together the deposit, you're in heaven because you're going to be buying something cheap. And so the um, so to me the housing market's still got some weakness to come. Yeah. Probably six to twelve months, and we'll probably get a peak trough fall. I, I think I agree with Joe. 20 percent in total, something of that order. Uh, and then when we get to the end of next year, the ABA's cut you know, 50 or 100 basis points, there'll be a bit of a um, bit of resurgence in demand. Pete. Oh, sorry. Oh, yep. sorry, possibly one thing just to touch there is uh, the new development uh, segment of the market. I think there's going to be some more weakness in those areas. You know, when we see downturns, we do see developers uh, go bankrupt. We haven't seen too much of that uh, happening yet, but we're certainly seeing in a lot of the, uh, in terms of valuations for projects coming up to completions, a lot of these valuations are coming in below the contract price. So people will be A, either walking away or having to tip in more of their own money to settle on these projects. And um, in certain areas, we're already seeing that uh, developers are offering a lot of incentives for people to settle. You know, we'll, we'll give you a $20,000 cash rebate, but we keep the price here, or we'll chuck in the next five to get you to settle. <laughs> Uh, some of these <laughs> projects. and It's probably not been so prevalent in Sydney and Melbourne yet, but I, I certainly think with the amount of supply still coming, uh, we're going to see more and more of that over the next Is few that, years. Have, people, have you seen people settling with the next five? Yeah. I've, I've seen some pretty, some pretty <laughs> neat uh, deals out there if you're, if you're willing to buy off the plan. Um, not something that I'd be willing to do at the moment, but uh, there's, there's certainly people out there that would do it. Uh, Pete, um, how are you talking people through this? Um, well, I suppose um, from a macro point of view, uh, Steve mentioned the credit cycle. And I, I think of it as like a pendulum, the credit cycle. It spends very little time stationary in a sort of 
equilibrium position. It's either swinging towards too loose, and we've had that in Australia for a long period of time, um, but then it starts to swing back towards too tight. And I think, um, you know, APRA would argue that the tightening started way back in 2014, but it only really started to bite in 2017. And now, um, you know, you'll ask anyone in the real estate sector with a real estate business, they will always tell you lending standards are too tight. Um, but in saying that, I mean, I've, I've been observing and investing in real estate a long time. I've never seen anything like it with some of the forensic analysis of mortgage applications now with um, particularly household expenditure, you know, line by line analysis of credit cards. Um, so this is... Uh, in terms you of know, looking at statements. And, yeah, that's right. What and you spend, yeah. what used to be covered by the household expenditure benchmarks, um, you know, now people are looking at credit cards line by line. Now, look, this is room of, by and large, sophisticated investors. I think we all understand if you're borrowing at 4% and you're being stress tested at seven and a quarter, you know, a $50 line item for pet food, you know, th this isn't really about whether that person can afford the loan. This is about what happened three or four years ago. And a lot of very nervous operators were in the midst of a banking royal commission. So the final report doesn't come till 1 February. So until then, uh, it's uh, more of the same. Uh, what happens next year? Who knows? But, a lot uh, could hinge on what the recommendations of that are because we don't know. Yeah, look, um, in the interim report, there were no smoke bombs in it. It talked a lot about culture, but there was, there was nothing left field. Uh, there may be some changes to mortgage-broking um, methodologies and commissions and so on. Um, but the, the thing that's taking up a lot of my time at the moment um, is uh, trying to, clients just want to be repositioned because it, it looks very clearly as though the Labour Party is going to win the election. Massive changes proposed for the way in which property is taxed. And um, I just don't think this is really well understood because the, the policies that Labour have, have proposed, there are some massive loopholes in there, uh, almost never discussed. Yeah, they, they clarified um, uh, some of this a few weeks ago. Yeah, and um, the, the Labour is badging this is that you can't negatively gear established property, but you actually still can if you've got investment income, dividend income, family trusts. There's, there's huge loopholes in the uh, methodology or the legislation they've proposed. Um, so anyway, I mean, Stephen's going to tell us what a great idea the proposals are. <laughs> I think, um, I think you know, to be fair, there's a, there's a multi-generational change to be made. I'm just not... I'm not sure they've gone about it the right way. I would have thought either put a cap on deductions or phase it out, but instead we've, we've ended up with grandfathering and a two-tiered market between mm. new and established housing. It, to me, it's creating even more questions than it solves. Um, Stephen, I might go back to you on the rationale for it being a, uh, the, the comment that you made that drew a very interesting reaction um, about the time, it being a good time to buy a house. Yeah, uh, I, I've actually... Um, doing some work on a, on a few bits and pieces, and uh, I must confess it's a bit of an informal survey, but I've spoken to a bunch of people, friends, family and other people, uh, about who, who, people who have held their property that they live in as opposed to investments, quite, quite separate uh, issues here. So people who have bought and held their house for more than a decade, at this stage I've had 0% regretting the decision. And one of the issues about buying a house to live in is, of course, well, some people hope that they make a huge capital gain tomorrow and the prices increase at 20% a year for forever. Uh, but in the cycles, and we have had some cycles of quite significant periods of flat or down 
periods in prices in different cities, but no one regrets buying a house to live in. No one that I'm aware of. And so, to sort of, and, I'm, and I am well aware of a lot of people who three, four, five years ago think, oh, prices are too high, I'll hold back. They've been absolutely smoked in terms of their decision to hold off, even with these prices down nearly 10% in Sydney. They're still well above where they were had they got in back then. So my hunch is that if you've got a 10-plus year time horizon on the house that you buy to live in, just buy the bloody thing and uh, sit back and enjoy it. And you can put picture hooks in. You can have a cat. You can paint the, you can paint the wall purple. You can do whatever you want in your house because you own it. You're not going to get kicked out by your landlord. And, 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 the, um, and if the price goes up 20%, you're not going to sell it because it's your house. If it goes down 20%, you're not going to sell it because it's your house. The only caveat is if you lose your job, and of course that's a macro-cyclical issue, and, um, uh, which, is, which is very separate to the issue of buying a house if you're competent and you've got the ability to finance it. And uh, the, I'm waiting for the update from the RBA because I don't have the ability to calculate these numbers, but the RBA has put out a whole bunch of affordability measures which include prices and household income, plus interest rates, which of course are vitally important, and on that measure, House prices, the ability to, to service a standard mortgage on a standard price with a standard income as the benchmark is about where it's been on average for the last 30 years. No more, no less. But does, Actually, does that, sorry, does that, does that account into uh, the affordability measure? Because you're talking about servicing a mortgage once you actually have a property. I think the, the issue that a lot of people have at the moment is that actually affording the deposit to go and get the loan to go and get the property. Is that something that you're not concerned about? Uh, borrow 95%. Sorry. Yeah, but just, well, just leverage up. I think that might be difficult in the current environment. Yeah, I, okay. It, I, might, I it might be a bit harder to get the deposit, but... But it's still incredibly hard. So I know if you look at our updated house price forecasts around mortgage serviceability, actually on our numbers in Sydney, mortgage serviceability will fall below its long-run average in the next 12 months. Yay. And actually, the time taken to save the deposit based on the average income uh, for the average price home is going to fall about 30%, but it's still at nine years in Sydney. It's still at nine years. So... I, I tend to, to agree with you. I think we have seen first home buyers, we have seen that latent demand come in in New South Wales and Victoria, helped a bit by stamp duty relief. Yep. But actually, household formation uh, rates have fallen. They are below their long run average. It's still incredibly hard for first home buyers to get that first leg into the market. And now, some will, the marginal one will, but it's still tough. I think one of the other things we're seeing at the moment is there are these stamp duty concessions in New South Wales and Victoria, and you're encouraging first home buyers into the market now when it's falling. Uh, so straight away from day dot, people are buying these properties and it's losing value. Now, if that's the property they're going to live in for the next 20 years, that's not necessarily a problem. But a lot of people don't buy their final family home with their first property. And I think that's potentially a bit of a challenge. And I think we're starting to see the number of first home buyers fall a little bit. So I think some of the more savvy ones are realising that these price falls are a little bit ingrained now and going to continue for a while and maybe holding off uh, jumping into the market despite the fact yeah. that they don't need to pay stamp duty. Yeah. I think FOMO is over, yeah. right? <laughs> We've seen the emails and, uh, and banner ads on websites for the last decade. Australia's housing crash 2008, 2009, 2010. <laughs> I might ask you very quickly, what will be the catalyst actually going to turn this downturn into the proverbial crash where we see prices say off 30% or more? Well, just a tough one to open up with, certainly not our forecast. I mean, I guess for me, it's around the credit cycle. 
And if we, if we have something that comes, and we've had a few unforeseen events around credit, if you get something that comes that tightens credit beyond even sort of what the further tightening that we've got in our numbers, um, at some point that starts to really impact sentiment. You know, it, dry, it feeds into demand, it feeds into price expectations, uh, it feeds into investor interest, both onshore and offshore. So for me, it's a credit event, another credit event. Hey. Any, uh, any uh, solutions to solve this, uh, this career? Well, I, think, um, I suppose one of the dubious advantages of being British or Irish is that we've, <laughs> we've lived through credit crunches in real time. You know, when people are too scared to borrow, uh, the banks won't lend. When people, no people are rushing to the Northern Rock to get their money out. Um, I mean, at this point in time, it's nothing like that because I know a lot of people in the real estate sector will tell you they've got people desperate to borrow and invest, but the banks won't lend to them. Um, but the thing is with um, sentiment that, as Joe pointed out, you know, if sentiment keeps deteriorating, there comes a point where people say, right, I'll step back. And I don't think we're there yet, but uh, I guess, um, you know, to date, the regulators would probably be pretty pleased with what, what they've done, but how, how far do they want to push it? And I've been critical of the Reserve Bank once or twice in recent weeks and months, but <laughs> the... Weeks. But, the, but, they're, but they're, they're pragmatic, you know, to, to their credit. We, they've shown in the past, gosh, 20 years, they're mere mortals. They're, they get it wrong, and that's not a criticism because we all get some things wrong in our forecasts. But if they find that in the early in the new year, for example, just say your scenario and it, you know, is for a 25-plus percent fall, and they, and they detect that sort of occurring, we get monthly declines of 1% per month of the next three or four months. Auction clearance rates go to next to nothing. and Anyway, th they'll change their view. They're pragmatic. They'll change their view both on macro pru issues and they'll change their view on monetary policy if it happens. And I dare say whoever's in power may well change their view on how they handle fiscal policy. Okay, so uh, February next year, I'm going to wrap up. Um, but I want to ask you quickly, uh, Cam. Uh, February next year, we've got the Royal Commission. Um, an election now likely as of today. Now it looks pretty certain for May. Um, so... Um, what are you going to watch? Um, what, where do you think the... So we see the data every week, just like this week again, just looked a little weaker, a little bit more troubling. Um, tell me what in particular you'll be watching for signs of deterioration or indeed a floor. Yeah, I think, um, I think the listings are the big one. What happens uh, post-Christmas New Year in terms of new listings and, and the total stock on the market? I think, as Pete said, if there's any change in credit policies post-February uh, 1, uh, that's, that's the big thing to watch for. Uh, obviously, the arrears data that we see as well, if we start seeing that spiking. But uh, overall, I think, you know, you look at uh, the markets that have been hottest and are, and are weakening the most, unemployment rates falling in New South Wales and Victoria. There's plenty of jobs still out there, but, but certainly uh, watch what happens in that labour force, because if that starts to turn the other way, then that could have uh, more repercussions for the housing that's market. That's the one thing. The, yeah. If you want to follow one number... It's where the unemployment rate is at, right? I think yeah. so. Yeah. Um, okay, guys, we're going to wrap it up. Um, can you please thank our panel? I've got one thing to tell you. Go ahead. Um, this was specifically on property, but we're going to draw this out. Um, Bill Levins said he'd be here um, at about quarter to nine, so uh, he's here. Great. Um, so um, Bill will be joining us for the last um, for the final panel, and we've got one other panel um, to come before that. But for now, we're going to have a break for about twenty minutes. We'll listen to some music that the panelists have chosen, uh, get some food, um, have a drink, and um, we'll see you in about twenty minutes' time. Thanks.
Thanks for listening. That's part one of our two-part uh, recording of our live show, uh, which was at the Ivy, Devils and Details Live in Sydney on November 27th. Um, so you can find uh, the next part of this uh, in the podcast feed. Um, we hope you enjoyed it. Um, the show is produced by Rick Salter. Uh, I'm Paul Colgan. Been here with David Scott. We'll catch you next time.